The Guardian. Hello, I'm Alison Benjamin, and this is Environment Weekly. Coming up on this week's show, we visit a former colliery in the East Midlands which has reinvented itself as a sustainable energy village. The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott, tells us whether a recession would be good for the environment. And we hear from low-carbon man who's living in a tent. This is Environment Weekly from guardian.co.uk. With me in the studio, I'm joined by John Vidal, The Guardian's environment editor. Hello. And Sean Berry, the Green Party's candidate for London Mayor. Hiya. Any tips for a green Valentine's Day, guys? Don't go to a restaurant. They'll charge you three times as much to give you bottled water and a flower from Kenya. Don't. <laughs> Sean? Uh, well, I'm giving Valentine's to cleaner cars this year, which is nice. Um, but also maybe some fair trade chocolates. Well, you may remember we heard last week from Ben Clowney, who was planning to move into a tent for a week and become low carbon man. Here's what some of you have been saying on the blogs. All this will say to Joe Public is that if you want to address your carbon footprint, you have to live in a tent, which is about as counterproductive a message as you could wish to put out. Mr Clowney's stunt is every bit as unsustainable as the high-carbon lifestyle that he's railing against. We need to show people how to do this while living regular lives in regular houses. This chap is showing that a lot can be done to avoid waste of energy and resources by making a bit of an effort. Why doesn't he spend a week installing solar panels or a wind turbine on his roof? We thought we'd better find out how Ben's getting on. He's still using his mobile, so we should be able to speak to him from his tent now. Ben, are you there? I'm here in my tent. (laughs) How's it going? All right. It's been nice and sunny during the day, so it's been great, but a little chilly at night. But uh, I'm still alive, still healthy, so I'm happy. (laughs) What do you think of the comments we've been getting on our blogs? People saying this is a stunt and it's not really going to um, help the average person cut their CO2 emissions. What, what, What responses have you been having at the tent? mixed from the public it's a bit confused as to what i'm doing until i explain it i think but um yeah on the comments on the blog i think what i really want to say to that is just that obviously it's kind of a bit of a silly challenge and i'm not expecting anyone to go and move into a tent but um hopefully and i, I think it's had quite a lot of attention so far so hopefully by doing something like this i can kind of draw attention back to the carbon fast that tier are doing you know 40 simple actions over 40 days and those are the kind of things that people need to be doing by doing something wacky hoping to kind of grab people's attention and make them think about that and what's been so difficult so far? Um, I think the evenings, when the sun goes down about six, um, there's not much to do really apart from just getting into my sleeping bag. So, yeah, it's been a lot of time just spent in my tent in my sleeping bag. Been, I've heard a few foxes in the distance, but they haven't come to see in my tent, thankfully. Yeah, just a few random people shouting things out in the night, but generally it's been okay. <laughs> so what gadgets have you got there? Have you got a, you've got a wind-up radio, have you? I've got a wind-up radio. I've got a wind-up lantern, a wind-up torch. Got a solar panel to charge my phone. And um, what about food? How are you doing for that? Doing okay with food. I've just been eating kind of local produce. So I went to a farmer's market on Saturday, which is um, yeah, loads of local things. You know, local bread and cheese and ham and some vegetables. And well, good luck for the rest of the week. Thanks very much. And there's uh, even a, a live webcam. Uh, if you go to tfund.org, you can follow the links to, uh, to watch me 24 hours a day if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thanks very much. Okay, that was Ben Clowney in his tent in Teddington, southwest London. He's become low carbon man as part of Tier Fund's Carbon Fast for Lent. John, do you think this is a good idea? 
I think Ben needs a friend, actually. <laughs> no, I mean, the homeless of London are low-carbon people all the time, so he's actually only doing what a lot of people have to do all the time. But good on him. It's a personal protest, and it makes a lot of sense. Sean, do you think it's the best way to raise awareness about some of these issues? Well, it's, it's perhaps not the, the best way or the only way, but it's certainly a way. He's getting a lot of attention for what he's doing um, and drawing attention to the, I think, the very low-carbon footprints of people in developing countries, and I think that is the point. Obviously, the ideal thing we need to do is some, somewhere in between. Um, being green doesn't have to be a sacrifice. Um, there are lots of ways of cutting carbon and staying nice and warm in your house, for instance, increasing your insulation. There's no need to be living in a tent. But um, he's certainly doing a, a good job. Great. And you can join the debate at blogs.guardian.co.uk slash climate change. Now let's find out what's been happening in the environment news this week. Environment news. Secret eco-towns spark protest, The Observer. Controversial plans for 10 eco-towns have sparked nationwide protests. Local groups say they haven't been told about the proposals, which could see as many as 20,000 homes being built on their doorstep. The housing will be made with recycled material and carbon-neutral energy. But one of the planned locations is in a national forest. One is right next to an area of outstanding natural beauty, and another one is on a floodplain. Opponents are concerned about the impact of increased traffic and potential destruction of the countryside. They say the eco-towns will just create sprawling urbanisation. John, do you think these concerns are valid or is this just a case of not in my backyard? I think it's both. Um, We don't actually know the locations for the 10, so we can't leap ahead too far. I fear that some of them are just going to be dormitory towns for people and they are not even going to be particularly eco-towns in the sense that they're only going to be level three on the building regulations and whatever. It's not much more than what Mr Barrett does today anyway. So I fear that um, it's a very clever way of the housing minister sweeping in a lot of stuff. But we'll see. I mean, we'll have to wait for the moment. Sean, I mean, 40% of the homes are going to be social housing, we hear. I mean, we desperately need these homes, don't we? Well, 40% is uh, actually a very low number. In London, we already have a requirement for 50% affordable housing and new developments. I'd put that up to 60%. And I think there are better ways of creating the affordable housing we need. We need to fill up and fix up our existing towns, turn those into eco-towns, rather than building these new sort of... They're, they're very... They're flashy and they're they're gimmicky. And I think we do need to look at different ways of providing affordable housing. I don't want to turn around to a, a teacher in London and say, yeah, we've built you an affordable house, but it's in Bedfordshire. London's two-wheel transformation. Livingston maps out 12 bicycle motorways. The Guardian. Plans were unveiled this week by London Mayor Ken Livingston for a series of super cycleways across the capital to quadruple the number of cyclists by 2025. Free bike hire will also be available for short journeys from London stations. And in suburban town centres, cycle networks will link residential areas to schools, shops and parks. The scheme will cost £400 million over 10 years. Sean, uh, we'll come to your plans later, but as a cyclist yourself, is this what's needed to encourage a critical mass of people to get out their cars and onto their bikes? It is a fantastic step forwards, and it's um, it's down to the budget negotiations that the Greens on the London Assembly do every year that this has come in. Um, so I'm really, really pleased to see this happening. Obviously, I'd go further, but um, yeah, the, some of the ideas are absolutely great. The sort of cycle motorways down into the centre of town, they will have a critical mass of cyclists on. They'll do a lot for safety, and they'll do a lot to encourage more people to cycle. The difference between 
between cycling on one of these dedicated paths and trying to weave your way through traffic is just enormous and I think it'll make a huge difference. John, will it get you on your bike? Yeah, I would. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, one from Greenwich, please, right the way through to Farringdon Road. I think £400 million is not nearly enough over 10 years. Frankly, bicycle lanes, if you're going to do it properly, it costs mm. a fortune. And if you go to Amsterdam, you go to any Dutch or German city now, we realise how far we are behind. I mean, we are literally, we've mm. lost a generation of cyclists and uh, it's creeping back up. But now it's the absolute crunch point and huge money needs to be invested. But it's a real investment. It would be fantastic. Is this about Ken trying to get hold of the green vote? Yeah, it is. I mean, to be frank, it, it, it is. But good for him, um, because that's where, you know, green is quality of life and uh, bikes are absolutely the thing in a city like London. We need a deep, dark recession. It would help see off the environmental nonsense that has become so popular amongst the chattering classes, says Ryanair boss Michael O'Leary, The Independent. There's been a lot of debate following Michael O'Leary's comments about whether a recession would be good or bad for the environment. We pose the question to The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott. There's encouraging and discouraging news, really. In the short term, of course, lower levels of activity tend to mean less pollution. So people have got less money in their pockets. They're probably flying less, driving less, buying less. And so emissions in that respect will go down. And that's the good side. The bad side is that when the economy goes into a downturn, politicians take their eye off the ball as far as the environment's concerned. They have far more pressing things to worry about than CO2 emissions in 20, let alone 50 years' time. So they're really concentrating on short-term indicators of economic activity, which means they tend to sort of go for a dash for growth and the environment takes a back seat. So you might find that while you know there are fewer easy jet flights to Vilnius and Prague full of passengers and the most are a bit less clogged, that the government starts to take some dumb long-term decisions for the environment in pursuit of short-term boost to activity, and that tends to be what happens. I mean, in every previous economic downturn, there has been a fading away of, of political buy-in to the environment. So, for example, you saw in the early 1970s the start of Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth when the boom was going on, and then all that activism sort of drained away during the oil crisis of the mid-1970s. Similarly, the recession of the early 1980s meant that the environment took a back seat and then it started to come back to the fore again in the late 1980s when you had a stonking great boom. The recession in the early 1990s meant that people were more focused on what was happening to their houses and their businesses than they were on the environment. So these things do tend to have their ups and downs with the swings of the economic cycle. So the problem that the environment may have is that it will slip down the list of government priorities that will be a priority for the good times but not for the bad times. Sean, do you think this might be a problem for the Green Party? It certainly has been in the past in terms of um, people wanting to um, invest in measures to sort out green problems. Um, if we act now, we can do something about this. We don't have to go through the very painful um, reductions in carbon emissions through a recession. We can actually do things, um, which I'll talk about later, <laughs> like put in free insulation and uh, make it easier not to use the car so that rises in oil prices don't lead to pain, but actually lead to gains for the environment and gains for our quality of life. It is a very worrying thing when we've got a recession in, in the offing in terms of green politics, because it does mean that the other parties all take these very short-term views. They're very worried about cash flow. They're not going to make decisions that improve people's quality of life in the long term, and that is a bit of a worry. John? Yeah, I agree with both of you. I think it's actually a fantastic opportunity for governments to become extremely green. Traditionally, the way out of a recession is to get people building roads or goodness knows what. Well, here is the perfect solution. Spend your way out via the environment. Get people insulating their lofts. It's dead easy. It's dead cheap. The long-term benefits are absolutely phenomenal so that when you eventually come out of the recession, we've actually got a far more sustainable economy. 
When Ollerton Colliery closed in 1994, the future looked bleak for the East Midlands coal mining community. But over the last decade, it has transformed itself into the award-winning Sherwood Energy Village. Guardian correspondent Martin Wainwright went to find out how. There's a bit of controversy at the minute about eco-towns, which the government's proposing to build at various places across the country, because people are worried that although they may be ecological, they're going to be taking up green space. Uh, but I've come to a place in North Nottinghamshire, Ollerton, where over the last 10 years they've developed what is in effect the, first, the country's first eco-village. It's not been controversial because this village, housing offices and industrial units, is on the site of the former Ollerton pit, the Ollerton colliery, which closed in 1994. So it's dramatically improved the landscape outside there's a duck pond, there's four windmills bootling away, and I'm just having my first ever coffee made with an eco-kettle. <laughs> I'm with Stan Crawford, who's the chief executive of Ollerton Energy Village, which is in the news because it's just won the country's top planning prize. That's the Silver Jubilee Award of the Royal Town Planning Institute. Stan, you, you were a miner. Yes, that's right, yeah. I lived in Ollerton and I worked at uh, Bevercourt Colliery. I remember coming here in 1994 and it was miserable, wasn't it, then? Yeah, I mean, Ollerton received a significant blow to its future when um, the pit closure was announced. More than a lot of communities because it was actually the third most profitable pit in Britain and they'd just invested in new machinery. In fact, as the machinery was going down the shaft, the, announce- the closure announcement came, so it was a, a bit of a shock. But instead of people, understandably in a way, just taking the bat home, what did you do? There was a, a big feeling somebody had made a decision that we had no control over, no opportunity to influence. So um, we had a public meeting and the, the meeting decided that we weren't going to wait for anybody to do anything to us. We were going to take control and um, do it for ourselves. So we went off to British Coal and said, can we buy the pit, please? And we ended up with a portfolio of property of about 120 acres for a value of 50,000. But we convinced them to give us an interest-free mortgage for £50,000, and the deed of charge was that we would pay that off if we made any profit, which we paid off a long time ago. Very good. And I gather you use the old self-help method that communities such as this and in Yorkshire, where I live, have done of, am I right, an industrial providence society. Would you mind just explaining, because there'll be other people who might be interested in doing this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We looked at becoming a company. We looked at becoming a charity. Both of those have got the benefits, but also got the drawbacks. An industrial providence society, as you suggested, has been around sort of since the 1850s. It's owned by shareholders. We have um, shareholder membership. But in our case, there's no dividend paid to those shareholders. And the aims of our organisation is for the refurbishment of colliery sites for the benefit of the community. So all of our profit goes back into activities on the site and eventually into the wider community. Put it crudely, we recycled 91-acre site and put it back fit for use. We moved a million cubic metres of sand and recycled 100,000 tonne of concrete. The concrete is now under the roads and the car parks on site, so we practice what we preach right from the very beginning. All of the buildings on site, rainwater harvest, foot to flush the toilets. There's lots of other technologies that people have embraced, but the basics are good quality build, look at the orientation of the building, look at where the sun rises and sets, we harvest a lot of solar in this building because we've got a lot of glass. That's very interesting, just the simple positioning of the building. Absolutely. One of the things that this building was, when it was originally designed, it was looked, we were looking for the view, but we've moved it 20 degrees because it's actually better for the harvest of solar. We've still got a nice view, but it's that sort of thing. It's about looking at the, the orientation of the building, look at where the, wind, the prevailing winds come from, 
and just use common sense. The mesh on the outside of the building is actually a solar shading which allows the light through but prevents the heat from coming in, traps the heat outside. The trick is to keep heat out if you don't want it. We have a passive ventilation system here so the windows in this office that we're sat in will automatically open when this room gets too hot and pull cool air through the building using the, the winter garden as the ventilation stack. And the third thing is that we have ground source heat pumps in, in this building and the beauty about ground source heat pumps is you can also cool with them so that we get background cooling in the hot weather. As we sit here now there are as many people working on this site as there were when the pit shut so we've got 600 people working here. We set ourselves up to have a very diverse economic base it was about getting lots of different jobs in here so that we would never be devastated the way that it was when the colliery shut and the hosiery industry. Traditionally in these sort of communities the men went to the mines the women went to the hosiery industry and we lost both industries. The thing that's really pleased me more than anything is the majority of this site has been built by private sector. So it's not being reliant on the public purse. It's about businesses seeing the reasoning behind our thinking, build to our standards, work with us, reduce your running costs forever, and that increases your profitability. Go to an enterprise zone somewhere else, you may get your rates paid for 10 years, but at the end of 10 years, you will get a rates bill. Mm. And as we see now with electricity and gas prices going the way we are, what we've been seeing for the last 14 years has been vindicated. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because you sometimes come to these initiatives and it's all subsidy, either from Europe or from the government, and you do wonder, well, when that ends, what's going to happen? We looked at a lot of different options. As I said, we did the master planning in public meetings and, and obviously tourism. We're in Robin Hood country. <laughs> tourism was one of the options but we felt that you would have to keep reinventing yourself to get the numbers through the doors to create the money and we, we wanted it, it to be completely self-sustainable that's what sustainability is all about it's not just about the environment it's about the economy as well and the social infrastructure and and what we do here is is address all of those three i think robin hood would be very impressed you, you, there'd be no need to rob the rich <laughs> the merry men and women are all doing very well by themselves That was Martin Wainwright in Sherwood Energy Village. I'm Alison Benjamin. Still to come on this edition of Environment Weekly, we hear about the Green Party's plans for London and how they propose to pay for them. If you want to use your car less, but cycling or public transport doesn't appeal, how about walking to work or taking the kids to school on foot? For our campaign of the week, we meet a man who's making it easier to tread the streets of Britain's cities. Hi, my name's Jamie Wallace. I'm the founder of walkit.com. We're the online walking route planner with a mission to get people walking more in and around our towns and cities. We've launched in London and Birmingham and Edinburgh and Newcastle and Gateshead just recently. And shortly we'll be launching in Glasgow and Leeds in April. It's dead simple. You just toddle along to www.walkit.com and you put in your start location, and that might be a postcode or a street name or a point of interest. That's your point A. You bung in point B, your destination, and you press go. And up pops a little walking route map, and we give you the route. We give you your journey time according to your walking pace, so whether you're, you dawdle along or you're a medium pace walker or a snappy walker. And we give you a calorie burn, so how many chocolate bars you're burning along the way, and how much carbon dioxide you've saved by not going by taxi or by tube or by bus. So that's it in a nutshell. It's proving very popular. We get lots of great feedback. Um, We get some grumbles as well, but we're working on them. Walkit.com, it's the smart thing to do because it's the easiest way to get around town. Thanks. That was Jamie Wallace from Walkit.com. Another way to reduce your carbon footprint is to join the Guardian's Tread Lightly initiative. 
Almost 4,000 of you have saved more than 44 tonnes of CO2 by signing up to weekly pledges. Last week it was recycling glass bottles. This week we'll be asking people to recycle their paper. To pledge, go to guardian.co.uk slash treadlightly. Well, we've got Sean Berry, the Green Party's London mayoral candidate, with us in the studio. Sean, you're probably best known for your campaign against gas-guzzling 4x4s. Now you're running for mayor under the banner A Green London is an Affordable London. Can you tell us a little bit about your plans for the capital? Yeah, um, well, my plans are, are basically to prove that the two things go hand in hand. So I'm focusing on policies that will save people money uh, now and in the future, as well as reducing their carbon footprint. So I'm planning to cut bus fares, make uh, travel more affordable for people, uh, invest more in cycling, get people onto bikes, which are obviously free once you've got one sorted out. I'm planning to give free insulation to every home that needs it. At the moment, we've got a scheme brought in by the London Assembly members, which gives it to people on benefit benefits and pensioners, um, it's actually much more effective, much more cost effective to run a scheme that's available to absolutely everybody with no conditions. Um, the people giving the free insulation can just walk down a street then and talk to everybody on that street. It all becomes very cost effective and will obviously save people a lot of money on their bills in the future. Um, I also want to do things like increase the affordable housing requirement um, in new developments. I don't think there's any reason why we shouldn't have the vast majority of new homes at affordable rents. Rent is very important as well. And getting people paid living wages is important as well, as well as um, helping people to pay for renewable energy. I really want to see London paying its own way in energy terms. And we need to get hundreds of thousands of solar roofs, hundreds of thousands of wind turbines outside, just outside of the city, obviously in the centre of London, they don't work so well. But giving people low-cost loans, very clever scheme um, being piloted by green councillors in Yorkshire at the moment is to give people the money and uh, take it back off the equity in their homes when the home is sold. So people pay nothing initially and it's just tied up there. Brilliant scheme. And, and the beauty of loans is you get the money back in the end. So it doesn't, I mean, although you're loaning the money out, in the end you get to use that money again and again and again. And you really make fantastic progress there with green issues. So how much would all this cost or your plans to grow? Green London. Well, it's all been costed and I basically plan to do all of it within existing budgets. Interestingly, the, the new services like the, the free bike scheme that I want to expand across London within three years, not seven years, which is um, the current mayor's plan, is all run by a private company. It's paid for through advertising. So there's no extra money needed for that. The free insulation scheme, similarly, the energy companies have to invest in energy saving as part of an EU law. The amount they have to invest is going up. The amount of carbon savings they have to make is going up. Now, by providing Providing for a very cost-effective scheme supported by some public money. We actually make the most of the money they're investing, make the best carbon savings for them. So they are very happy to invest in that scheme. Other things, like I've mentioned already, the renewable energy, it's loans. The money comes back, it gets recycled. So it's not an overall loss. My basic thing, I don't object to charging more tax at people for higher incomes, but that's not the way the mayor can raise money. It has to be done through council tax, which is the most unfair tax at the moment moment and I cannot bring myself to put up council tax because it's just so unfair so until there are other ways of raising money I'm, I'm doing all of this within existing budgets cancelling things like the Thames Gateway Bridge and um, bringing the tube public-private partnership back into public administration where it'd be more effective so there's mm. savings we can make there's money that we can bring mm. in doesn't need an increase in tax and one of your other plans is to close down city airport can you tell us why you want to do that well city airport's just a big useless white elephant and it's using up a lot 
lot of land in London, in central London that could be used for affordable housing. And I want to turn it into a, a green industries park to give a real boost to these green industries that will create us jobs that will see us through a recession. At the moment, um, it's sitting on land that's owned by Londoners and they want more land. They say they need to expand or they'll have to close. Well, I think my choice is pretty clear. Let's see it close. Let's, let's have that land for something more useful. It's just short haul flights and most of them can be taken by train instead. Uh, I just don't think it's a, a useful use of all that land in central London. I've got a question here from a blogger who says, do you think Ken has stolen your thunder on the environment? You know, he set a, a 60% CO2 reduction target for London by 2025 before Prime Minister. Now he's championing renewables, energy from waste, heat and power systems, cycling that we mentioned earlier. You know, he's in the Guardian's top 50 people who could save the planet. Well, I mean, he's, he's become greener and that's largely because of the Greens on the London Assembly who have a casting vote over his budget. So in his second term, yes, he's become a greener mayor. But the 60% target he set for 2025, that is what we need to do. That is what the science tells us we need to do. But he's not said that London will achieve all of this. The part that London will achieve is is only a section of that target. The rest, he said, needs to come from improved central government policies. And he's not had a lot of luck persuading central government to change their policies so far. And I would argue the best way of putting pressure on central government is to have a real green mayor in London. That will uh, put the frighteners on them and make them change their ways much much quicker than having a Labour mayor um, talking nicely to them. John? I'm fascinated the actual vote is kind of PR. Your second votes, are you going to ask people who vote for you to put their second ones for Ken? Or what do you think of the other mayors? We haven't made a final decision yet. Personally, I think that Boris Johnson would be a disaster for London. Especially... Has, Boris, has Boris gone mad? <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. But uh, we do run the risk of having a Tory monopoly in London because the Tories have, they don't need anyone else to support their budget. If they have a Tory mayor, the Tories on the London Assembly alone can vote through the, the mayor's budget. So we'll just have complete Tory control of London. London's electorate get to decide who will be their mayor on May the 1st and we'll be inviting the other candidates onto this show. That's all we have time for in this edition of Environment Weekly. Many thanks to my guest, Sean Berry. Thank you. And John Vidal. Thank you. And to my producer, Ian Chambers. Don't forget to give us your feedback at guardian.co.uk slash ethical living. I'm Alison Benjamin. Thanks for listening. The Guardian. Guardian.